0: Brexit, the once-in-a-lifetime event concerning the UK's departure from the EU, made for some surprising bedflows and supporters. Few people in the UK were more vocally supportive about Brexit than Barney Reynolds, the head of the global financial institutions practice at Sherman & Sterling, an international law firm. Over the course of nearly a dozen articles and six books, Barney penned widely read and highly influential op-eds over the advantages of Brexit leaving the European Union and outlined his views of the legal positions that would prove most successful during the months-long harrowing negotiations. Now that Britain has left the EU, his attention has turned to fleshing out the blueprint for future financial services trade with the European Union after Brexit, which, of course, got me thinking. Now that the UK's negotiations with the EU are underway, how will the country's fintech sector evolve? Mr. Reynolds? Ever, the regulatory diplomat, was extremely gracious in making the time to share his views for our fintech beat listeners. Always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the light. Side Barney, thanks for making it onto the show. Pleasure. No, it's uh, nice to be with you, Chris many uh, of of our listeners are not uh, in the United Kingdom, Uh, where exactly has Brexit left um, financial services firms in the UK?
1: So um, at the moment, the UK still um, operates within the EU uh, legal and regulatory framework, and that will continue until the end of this year, um, 2020. At the beginning of 2021, Uh, the UK for financial services either will um, break free and um, set its uh, own standards in its own way uh, or it will have um, entered into some sort of trading arrangement or agreement with the EU that uh, continues some or all of the existing mutual access arrangements between the UK market and the EU's financial market.
0: So what does that mean in real terms for the size and competitiveness of the UK's capital markets? I mean, uh, up to now, UK firms have been able to compete on equal footing with firms in continental Europe. Uh, but if there's no deal inked, will EU firms no longer come to London to do business if, if the UK is no longer a member?
1: So um, as a general matter... Finance is um, something that has a natural agglomeration um, aspect to it, in the sense that there have only been four global financial centers in the last um, 400 years, Antwerp and Amsterdam, both destroyed by war, Uh, London, and then New York, which came up when a third of London's infrastructure, and a lot of the people were wiped out in the Second World War. Um, So absent war, um, financial centers basically don't change, and the, the customers um, generally come to the market. Uh, and so, as a general matter, I would not foresee uh, the position of the global financial markets in the City of London changing. I think it will continue to be the main source of capital for um, equal with New York for the world. And uh, that will continue across Europe. So, what is at stake, I suppose, for financial institutions, and that includes um, fintechs, is whether we can come up with an architecture between the UK and the EU for, in regulatory terms, which avoids dual pools of capital and collateral with, with effectively mini pools being established in the EU.
0: So it seems like you're saying that ultimately the challenge of Brexit is not so much whether or not London remains a, a premier financial center, that, that ultimately it has the people, the bankers, the skill, the know-how but the question is how much inefficiency would be introduced if you have to comply with two sets of rules that require capital and collateral and and uh, dual r- registration and the like that so it's it's in your view there's friction if a firm would have to comply with both UK and EU rules
1: correct and the status quo where across Europe, and this is going to continue, as I say, until the end of 2020, is that there's one single set of rules and you don't have dual licensing and dual pools of capital and collateral and and, um, two sets of regulatory costs. That was introduced in a tentative form in 1996 and then only properly, really, uh, in 2007. So it's quite a recent thing. And the benefit of that, obviously, is the removal of these duplicative unnecessary costs, which are no good for anyone, in particular, obviously, the customers who ultimately end up paying for them, investors and savers.
0: What have been the trade-offs in participating in this streamlined financial services pact with the EU? I would have thought it's been pretty good for the UK.
1: The price tag for those costs has been, for for, for those, those cost savings, has in fact been a a deluge of regulation across the EU, which I think has dampened financial market activity. Um, So the UK will be coming out of that. It will regulate in its own traditional way, which is is more focused on the mischiefs that need to be um, managed and less um, prescriptive on everything else. And that will bring big benefits from the market. It may more than offset, or at least at the very least offset, um, the potential duplicative costs of running um, to, to, you know, under two regulatory regimes um, in parallel. Um, that's a possibility that, that remains to be seen. Uh, but I would suspect that nevertheless, there will be an arrangement that the UK and EU come to, which would avoid going backwards and creating duplicative costs which weren't there before.
0: Certainly, we've seen the EU demand, for example, that clearing houses that process and assign risk to euro-denominated transactions, including government bonds, leave London and go to Europe. And now, I mean, that's pretty stunning. It's an industrial example of potential consequences. But within the fintech community, are there any particular pockets of concern that may stand apart from others?
1: So the two that spring to mind are um, direct access cross-border from the UK to customer bases rather than having to set up sort of mini satellite ventures in the continent or in in, in other bits of Europe in order to access customers. The, the other would be infrastructure-like payments and having access to the relevant payment systems and, and so on. So both of those, I was envisage being included in a deal. I mean, there are workarounds, and I've, I've published a book on this as well, uh, called The Art of the No Deal. But but I would, I, I, I think, I mean, everyone's pushing now in the UK for a deal. I think that will happen. The, the euro clearing example you raised um, is a very different um, uh, animal in a way. The issue there is not the UK. In reality, um, this is um, to do with the shortcomings of the Euro project. The euro is very fragile as it's currently constructed. And the concern about euro clearing arose in continental Europe in 2011-2012 when London Clearinghouse started haircutting the value um, as a clearinghouse of continental European or southern uh, European um, government bonds because of the risks that the market saw in those bonds. They were referencing their analysis by the OTC markets. What the... um, Eurozone or some in Eurozone, particularly in France, wish to do is to have control of their haircutting and margining of risk. So that the value of eurozone government bonds is not haircutted, regardless of what the market market in the outside world thinks of the value of those bonds. That's a systemic risk issue. It shouldn't uh, it shouldn't be allowed to be moved to a to a regulatory regime which seeks to control um, in a way free speech, you know, the market's assessment of what something's worth as collateral. Uh, but that's what that debate is about. It's not actually it's it, it, it's got embroiled in the discussion, but it's too generous issue to do at the Eurozone.
0: Have you seen any uh, movement of fintechs, um, either in or or out of the region?
1: Not much is the answer. Um, There's an element to which people want to be close to other people, coming up with smart, original ideas. And so the sort of adjustments I've seen have been ones where businesses based here want to consider setting up a local presence onshore in the EU in case there's no deal, um, but they could operate still from here running effectively, but rather than sort of shifting around. Um, so I think, I think it's an ecosystem where people want to be together. They want to have the best legal and regulatory regime. To my mind, for finance, for tech, the main thing is the environment that one operates in. Legally and in regulatory terms, as long as the tax regime is not prohibitive, those are really the key key things. London has those in abundance. I don't think anything's going to change there. Uh, And in fact, Brexit is an opportunity to sharpen things up a bit.
0: What differentiates Britain's fintech ecosystem from that in the EU?
1: Well, I think there's a huge amount of innovation here, and there are all sorts of um, fantastic fintechs um, springing up the whole time. Um, But but in fact, at the end of this year, uh, at the end of 2020, when the UK comes out of the EU regulatory architecture, one of the um, uh, benefits in a way of Brexit will be extricating the EU's legal and regulatory regime from the civil law approach of purposive regulation over prescriptive rules. Um, which which is a, just a different way of approaching the law that, in my view, tends to dampen tech and financial innovation.
0: Could you explain that? What do you mean by the civil law approach and, and, and extricating it?
1: Yeah, the EU's legal approach is based principally on the civilian t- method. And the civil law method... Which, you know, is, um, developed, you know, from, from its origins as far back as the Roman Emperor Justinian is based on, um, a, a sort of, uh, a technique, uh, involving control of markets, control of the, the outer regions of the Roman Empire. Uh, it was then adopted and obviously absorbed into French law and German law. There are two notable features of the system. One is that unlike the common law where everything is permitted and that's prohibited, in the civil law system, rights have to be specified. So um, you have a tension between written down rights and um, restrictions, um, which automatically in and of itself narrows in a way the, the conceptual basis for the rights. And then secondly, because there is no sort of presumption of freedom, if you like, then, generally speaking, when something new happens, a new type of business activity arises, the authorities um, create a legal framework for it pretty much immediately or very quickly in order to establish those rights and establish the playing field that people can operate on in that industry. If you try, if authorities are trying to prescribe all the time, how the world is to, to fit into certain boxes, those boxes quickly, if they are properly thought out at the very beginning, which is often not the case, but if they, even if they were to be, they very quickly ossify and become out of date, and in fact, restrictions on innovation and business.
0: That's really interesting. So you're basically saying that civil law may not necessarily be hospitable to innovation, right? I mean, that's that because of the top-down manner in which it develops from legislators and from statutes on the high, and and you compare it to common law, which for our our non-legal listeners is more ad hoc, uh, you can come to the conclusion that common law, since again, it's more ad hoc, more tentative, based on incremental decisions by judges, and thus adapts piece by piece, that that may be more hospitable to innovation especially in those instances where we don't know where that innovation will ultimately lead. How, how then can you look at how fintech law in and of itself will ultimately uh, be able to be interoperable between these, uh, you know, the the common law approach in, in the UK, obviously in the United States, and then the European Union when you think about uh, Brexit? I, I know that you've proposed an enhanced equivalence regime. And maybe you can walk through what equivalence means in the first place. But you've, you've tried to think through this question uh, about how do you take these two very different approaches so that fintech firms can, can operate across borders.
1: The way the, and the UK has developed whilst in the EU, the concept, which is now embedded in many different um, EU financial services laws of equivalence whereby if a um, foreign country's laws or regulations in the relevant context hit the same high-level outcomes, often referenced to international standards, then they're recognized as, as being sufficient. For mutual access on that topic to take place, so a business could, under an equivalence arrangement, uh, where the UK has been recognised as having meeting equivalent standards, high level standards based on international standards, businesses in that area could operate across the entire EU under UK law and regulation rather than EU law regulation and without the duplication. of uh, of any requirements under EU law or regulation. Now, I came up with, in July 2017, a detailed exposition of of something I'd I'd originally written up in a publication in the the previous year, in 2016, called Enhanced Equivalence. Uh, And the idea was to take the existing EU law concept of equivalence, perfect it in a way because it's only been incorporated in you know most but not all uh, EU financial services measures to to, to to complete the picture, so to have it across the whole panoply of, of the internal market passporting arrangements in the EU. And then, so you fill in the gaps, then you'd have predictability around it, so you'd put a legal structure over that um, with, a, with a dispute resolution process on uh, where you have experts determining whether a high-level outcome has been met, um, mainly by reference to the Basel rules um, uh, for banking.
0: Let me just jump in to sort of uh, make sure that I'm, I'm following it. So usually, if if you if one country wants to create a streamlined ecosystem so that its firms can operate into another country. The two countries, from a regulatory standpoint, developed this equivalence understanding, saying that your regime is more or less equivalent to mine. So, you know, the, our, our firms can operate in each other's backyards. But, but this process, it has, even within the EU, it has some gaps, and you want to fill those gaps, as well as to create some kind of dispute resolution mechanism. Is that something that you're envisioning just for the European Union for purposes of Brexit? Or is this something that you're thinking about for Britain's and for the UK's global strategy post-Brexit?
1: The latter. I would use this globally. So, as I said, the UK has been a uh, you know, large driver in creating this conceptual framework. The US doesn't have it. It's, you've got the substituted compliance concept at the moment. I'm hoping the US will be interested in this uh, and other countries. Could you maybe explain the
0: difference in between enhanced equivalence and the substituted compliance then here in the United States?
1: When a country's, a foreign country's laws or regulations in a particular area are declared to be equivalent, there is complete reliance on the um, application of those laws and regulations um, locally in the foreign country. Um, and businesses operating under those laws or regulations can operate across the EU in reliance on their local rules and regulator. Substituted compliance is slightly different, which is that the u s uh, will allow for a lighter touch, if you like, application of its rules. Um, where the rules on a line-by-line basis pretty much are assessed as being the same if, or as close as, as, as can be to the U.S. rules abroad, and the, the, there are some aspects in the, of EU law that have been recognized on this basis, where if you comply with the EU versions, that sort of helps you in relation to, to the level of regulatory oversight in the U.S., but there's no outsourcing or recognition granted. So the U.S. will continue, the U.S. regulators continue to oversee and monitor, and there's double jeopardy in a way. So if you breach the laws um, over here, you'd be in breach of the law here, and you would be in breach um, of the law in the U.S. So it's a different, it's less generous, um, less collaborative architecture.
0: The U.S., being much more of a trust but verify system where you have a framework that allows an initial degree of collaboration but but ultimately the, you know the sort of damocles is sort of held behind the back uh, whereas the EU method is is much more generous uh, up front once we've once some kind of uh, cross border arrangement uh, has been
1: inked the EU has equivalence arrangements in place with common law jurisdictions around the world, over 100 uh, such arrangements, including with the US and Singapore, or, or tens, of, uh, tens of such arrangements. So it, it, it's doable between common and civil law systems. And, and the, the beauty of it is that you focus on outcomes, not how legal systems get there, because there are different ways of getting there. It recognizes that there is a benefit to everyone of having access to the best possible financial services and products in the world, And that's a benefit in competition um, so that people can have the opportunity to compete on the best possible terms. And if you're able to do that within a legal and regulatory environment that's more favorable, but while still protecting the market from systemic risk and other risk, that is all for the benefit of everyone in the world.
0: When you look at enhanced equivalence, I mean, this this is probably going to take uh, some some resources. You know, one of the questions that was asked even when it comes to Britain's trade relationships, so, you know, outside of just financial services but trade and goods, was that, you know, uh, the U.K. had to go and develop a brand new trade corps of, you know, of, of, of trade diplomats because they have a bunch of new trade agreements to either renegotiate or to ink with all of these other countries in the world because they had been up to that point in time operating through the European Union. If we're going to consider sort of this this new um, enhanced equivalence regime, we're going to need more regulatory diplomats as as well. Does the UK even have the capacity um, at this point in time to build out and to operationalize sort of equivalence on a global scale?
1: I believe the UK does have the capacity for this. In reality, within the EU, the UK as the host of the global market in this time zone has led the way on drafting and thinking about regulation. So there are lots and lots of very high-end regulators here uh, who are in the weeds of the detail of regulatory regimes and how they work. They have very strong ties with US counterparts and others around the world. Uh, so I think it's eminently doable. I think the concept of equivalence. I mean, the reason I took equivalence as a concept is it's it's in a way one that we've already been working on. Um, one could try and come up with things, something from scratch, but there has been no better idea that anyone's come up with than pegging things to high-level outcomes, which is really the underpinning of the equivalence context concept. It would save U.S. financial institutions and fintechs capital and collateral, if we get it right, it would give, more importantly, access to U.S. systems and corporates, uh, access to um, the global financial products um, available, uh, incubated and uh, developed, and uh, made available through the, the London market, which, which opens up horizons that aren't, say, readily available in the time zone in, in, in the U.S. It's just you know, it's a different market.
0: Barney, thanks so much for making it onto the show.
1: Pleasure. Good to talk to you, Chris.
0: There are lots of uncertainties Brexit presents, from what the UK's departure means for its local businesses to world-beating capital markets. But for fintech in particular, a considerable sense of unease seems to center on not just what kinds of cross-border access will be available to companies once separation is finalized, but also on which native legal systems will serve to best foster sustainable, socially helpful, and competitive innovation. And that question is a surprisingly complex one, zeroing in on not just specific rules, but also the very nature of the legal systems in which new fintech applications will be built. And from this standpoint, Brexit serves as a particularly interesting natural experiment. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer, D-R. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. FinTech Beat is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.